Somebody say amen. Amen. (laughs) What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. You know, I love our Lord Jesus Christ. I love him with all my heart. And I want you to know something else. I love his church. I'm a churchman. I believe in the church. I believe that Christ established the church. And it's it's a beautiful thing to have a church family. It's a wonderful thing. And, and, you know, it's, uh, I just love Memorial. I love y'all. And and I say that, you know, sometimes I say that um, if I'm bringing a hard truth or something, you know that I love you, right? Um, (laughs) This is going to, this is going to hurt you worse than, no, you know what I mean? We tell our kids that this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you, the, um, do you realize something that the more you invite people to come to church, the more likely you are to come to church? Now think about that for just a moment. The more you invite other people to come to church, the more you are likely to come to church. Because if you invite people to church, you don't want them to show up without you being here. But the more you invite others, the more you are, you will come to church. And if you think about what our average attendance is, I mean, think what would happen on a Sunday morning if all of those regular attenders came all at the same time. I mean, this place would be packed. Typically, over 50% of church participants do not attend church regularly over 50 percent and this percentage goes down dramatically when we are regularly inviting others see it's something about that it's that same psychology when you start talking about your favorite restaurant you start talking about your favorite restaurant and all of a sudden you're getting hungry for it you got a hankering for it and so next thing you know you're going to be there it's the same kind of deal But inviting others to worship is not only about others being ministered to, but it's also about us being ministered to. I mean, listen, as we invite others to worship, we begin coming to worship more often. (laughs) We participate more in our church family, in the events that we have, but ultimately... We have a closer walk with God. And it all begins by us inviting others to come and join us. See, I think that's beautiful. I want to share with you a few thoughts today about um, church membership. (laughs) Church membership. And we think, well, you know, hey, Christ died for the church. He died for the church. And if it's important for Christ, then it should be important to us. And, and, you know, I I think about this because I I ask the question, what is the cost of our church membership? What is the cost? We we pay for a lot of things, a lot of memberships. We pay for gym memberships. We pay for club memberships. We pay for golfing memberships and various other types of memberships. But understand this, in many areas of the country, there is very little expected of church members. 
of people that join a church. You know, in other parts of the world, church membership can be quite costly. You can be excommunicated from your family for joining a Christian church. But what is the bar on that? What is, what is the cost of our church membership? You know, the early church was blessed with dramatic growth, dynamic miracles, determined leadership. And these, these things allowed the church to touch its world. You know, to really make an impact. Because all of this was going on and, 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 and there was another factor in their growth. Think about this. It was the attack of the devil and persecution on the church that caused it to grow. And here's the problem. We get, rather than lean and mean, we get fat and sassy. Okay, and we don't like anybody telling us what to do. And really, this is a problem. Because the early church, they they faced their trials... They looked the enemy in the eye, they overcome them, they rose above them, and they brought glory to God. See, when we consider the early church, their success, we may forget that what they gained, they gained out of the furnace of trial and affliction. I mean, watching them as they face difficult and dark days can help us too. When we have to face hard times. See, trials can come from many different sources. Everyone here has issues, has trials that they're going through in their life. And those trials either push us closer to Christ. And I want to say the body of Christ. Or they take us away from it. See, trials, they're all filtered through the grace and knowledge of our Heavenly Father. And most of the time, we just want our suffering to be taken away. We just want to be done with it. But God has a purpose in that. His purpose is being accomplished. I want you to read this this morning out of Acts chapter 12. And I just want to read four verses here. Out of Acts chapter 12. You know, in Acts chapter 12, it's probably most famous for the arrest of Peter. And you remember how Peter was sitting in prison and, and, and um, he was sitting between some guards. An angel of the Lord came and woke him up and said, come on, you got to go. And so he got up and he left and the prison door was opened. And he, he found himself at, at, at Mary's house. And, and, and knocked on the door, and Rhoda answered the door, and she's like, you know, they were having a prayer meeting inside. And, and she knocked, he knocked on the door, and she looked out the people and said, oh, it's Peter. And she went back in and said, it's Peter, you know, and they were praying for Peter's release. Well, go let him in. Don't just leave him out there. Chapter 12 in Acts is famous for that story. But what I want to focus on is what happened before that story. Okay. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for how you have given us your word that we might know you better. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would blanket this place. And that in that Holy Spirit that you would, that you would convict our hearts. Father, that we would come to you in full repentance. Father, that we would desire more of you and less of us. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, I would submit to you this morning that church membership is always costly to those who take it seriously. You know, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem here, you have the church has just, has just been born. Okay, they're starting to meet, they're gathering together, they're, they're sharing things, they're, they're, they're holding things in common, they're taking care of needs, they're meeting, the church is growing by leaps and bounds, and, and it's, it's spreading across the, the, the countryside. And now, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Herod touches off another round of persecution. He was a friend of the Jews, but an enemy of the church. Oh, he wanted to be in good with the Jews... Verse 1 says that he laid hands on some who belonged to the church and, and he wanted to mistreat them. See, James was a leader in the early church. Because of his position, he was singled out as a target for Herod's persecution. And the account is told in simple brutality. Okay, think about this. Verse, verse 2 says, And he had James, the brother of John, Put to death by the sword. He had James, the brother of John. Peter, James, and John. That inner circle of Jesus' followers. That inner circle of the apostles, of the, of the disciples. Peter, James, and John. James is now killed. He's, he's taken out. And I asked the question, well, which Herod is this? Because it seems like there's Herod all through the New Testament. And there's basically four of them that we're talking about. There's Herod the Great, who was the builder, who went back in and helped the Jews rebuild Solomon's temple after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it in 587 B.C. And then what happened was Herod the Great was the one, when Jesus was born... Who, um, who was killing babies. And it was the reason why Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had to go to Egypt. So that was Herod the Great. Well, then there's Herod Antipas. He's the one who ordered John the Baptist's head cut off. Okay, that's the second Herod. The third Herod is this Herod. Herod Agrippa I. Okay? Then there's also Herod Agrippa II, which is the one that Paul gave his... Um, defense to, his testimony to, uh, in Acts chapter 25. But this is Herod Agrippa 1. And, and I, I recall in the Gospels, you go back to Mark 10, where James and John kind of asked for this. Okay? 
Mark chapter 10 verse 35 says this. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came, to Je- came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice this, that James was the first apostle to die after Jesus. His brother John was the last. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that all of the apostles that Herod kicked Uh, Picked to kill. (laughs) He picked the one that Jesus said would suffer. The one that he said would suffer. And you know we think as people we're so smart. That we got it all figured out. But all we're doing is just carrying out God's plans. He's using Herod to carry out his plan. And you think well how could that be? He killed James. All right, verse 3 says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So King Herod killed James. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, boy, he had struck gold. He said, look here, I'm going to go get Peter too. The one who's the voice box. The one who's talking about everything. The one who's the loud mouth. I'm going to go arrest him as well. So he proceeded to arrest Peter. You see, my point is this, is that church leaders are often the target when systematic persecution takes place. You know, if you look at persecution in other parts of the world that are going on today, they're, they're, they're arresting and they're persecuting the church leaders. Because they figure if they, can, if they can kill them, they can squash it. If they can get them to, to, uh, out of the way, then, then their, their deaths will, will cause others to be like sheep without a shepherd. And they'll be scared and they'll, they'll scatter. See, this is the danger of trials. I mean, if people can be made to feel helpless and hopeless and adrift then it's possible that they would disband and just go back to fishing or whatever they were doing before they started this thing. But you see, when trials come in our life, it's hard because it tends to want to kill our spirit. We can become depressed. We can become discouraged and disillusioned. And folks, when this happens, we become easy targets for the devil. He's got his eyes on us. He's watching us. See, Satan uses these things to tell us that God doesn't care. That he doesn't love us. That that there's no hope. And so many times people begin to despair. And when when the trials come, when the hard times come, when the furnace is kicked up, what they do is they back away and they say, you know what, I can't deal with this right now. I'm just going to take some time off. 
from serving the Lord. See, the danger is just that, that we back off from God. But folks, that is exactly where we need to have faith. I mean, the writer of Hebrews tells us to keep our eyes squarely focused on Jesus and run for His glory, laying aside all of those things that entangle us and run the race that is set before us. That's what we need, is we need to do that. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, especially when persecution comes, especially when the trials come. When things don't go as we planned, when, when some, the doctor uses the, the, the word cancer, when, when, we, when our job uh, is no longer, and, and when the things that happen to us we don't understand, we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. I mean, yes, trials are bad, but God means them for good. I mean, Romans 8 tells us, and we know, that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You know, beginning back in the first century, Christian suffering has continued on in one form or another ever since the first century. Because you see, those who take seriously their commitment to Christ, to His body, the church, they can expect to pay a price. You know, usually the cost isn't quite as intense as we're reading about right here. Where they take one of the leaders and they kill him with the sword, they, they cut his head off and, and be done with him. You know, one cost today that we all must pay is our time. It takes time to be a church member. It takes time to be a part of the church. You know, and most of us are busy people. I mean, as Americans, we have a tendency to stay frantically busy so that really appeals for our time fall on deaf ears because there isn't enough hours in the day to pack anything else into what we're already doing. Brother Ridge, you should know that. But the idea is, is we think that because we're busy, that we're being productive. That we're being effective. Or that we're even doing what God has called us to do. I mean, I think about that. I, I think, you know, the cost that we must pay is time. Church membership taken seriously and done right will be costly in our time. Another cost involves our value system. I mean, left to ourselves, it's like we almost always develop a me-first attitude. Like, I'm going to take care of me, and you take care of you, and we're all going to live in peace with one another. But folks, that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. The Garden of Gethsemane, it challenges us at this point. When Jesus prayed, not my will... But yours be done. See, the idea is we need to be in the very middle of God's will. I mean, that's where the peace comes. That's where the, the grace is poured out. We're called to lay aside all of our value system and place God's will in the very center of our lives. 
That's two costs. A cost that everyone is conscious of is our financial resources. I'm talking about money now. Going to meddling, I know. Again, the members of the early church, they were faithful. When financial needs came up, they rose to the occasion. There was no collection or assessment of dues. They simply took care of the needs that arose out of their own pockets. And we should do the same. When we see a brother or sister in need. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost our values. The things that we value. It's going to cost us money. And I would say to you this morning that church membership is costly due to the nature of the world that we live in. I mean, think about this. The early church, they experienced persecution. Why? Because Herod saw them as pawns. Pawns that he could use to to move forward and advance his own ambitions. I mean, that's what it says here. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. I mean, to win the favor of the Jews. He's persecuting the church. You know what? Human nature hasn't changed much in 20 centuries. There are still those who want to use the Christian community to advance selfish ambitions. There's people that use the Christian community for political reasons and business or professional reasons. And the church is still vulnerable to manipulation and abuse. Sometimes it can take on vicious dimensions. You remember when they, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and they were crying, the crowd was crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Glory to God! In just a few short days, that crowd was yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Oh, how fickle. When Nero set fire to Rome, he needed someone to blame. And so he blamed the Christians and had them brutally slaughtered. You know, today's opposition to the church, it may not take on such extreme forms here in America, but don't think it might not someday. Usually it's a little subtler, but I want to say just as insidious. I mean... Maybe it's loss of social acceptance. Maybe somebody blackballs us because we're a believer, because we're a Christian, because we're a member of that church or whatever. Or maybe we're being passed over for a job or a promotion or or whatever because people don't want to deal with that. Maybe it's people ridiculing or putting a a Christian down or, or, you know, even picketing and putting signs out and, and... being embarrassed by, by that. But indeed, there is a price to be paid for being a church member in today's world. We need to get over that. We need to recognize that. See, I would submit to you as well that church membership is costly, but ultimately, it's worthwhile. I mean, there are times when evil seems to be winning the day. Wicked men get away with murder and their popularity goes up, not down. That's what was happening here. 
The righteous suffer terribly. Their loved ones are bereaved. It's easy in these times to say, where is God in all of this? I would imagine John was asking that question. Where is God in all of this? Why did he allow this to happen? How can anything good come from such awful wickedness? You know, James and John had been close. They were brothers. And they shared interest in their father's fishing business. They worked together. They spent a lot of time together. They followed Jesus together. They were close. They had hopes and dreams of how God would use them in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. But now, James was suddenly gone. And John was left wondering, why? Why? At the beginning of this chapter, we have James. He's dead. He's been killed by Herod. We have Peter in prison. And we have Herod basking in his popularity and in his power. By the end of the chapter... We have Peter free. Herod is now dead. Eaten by worms, it says. And the word of God is growing and multiplying. See, the writer Luke here, he's he's showing us that the gospel is unstoppable. I mean, if you oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may temporarily win, but you will finally lose and lose big. But if you stand for the gospel, you may temporarily lose, but in in the final analysis, you will win and you will win big. See, since God is almighty, no force. (laughs) Since he's all powerful, no force can stand Against the the spread of his gospel according to his purpose. I mean, James lost his life. But he gained eternity. James was neither the first nor the last to give his life for his faith. I mean, down through the centuries, he's been admired for his courage. His name has a place of honor and it will live on. But we're seldom called to die for our faith. But we are called to live for it. We are called to live every day for our faith. Is the cost worthwhile? Is the cost worthwhile for what we have to go through? I would say it's worth whatever the cost as we live with ourselves. I mean, when we make a definite commitment to the Lord, when we are willing to pay the cost... There's a sense of being at peace with ourselves. We recognize, you know what? I'm in this. And I own it. And it's who I am. It's not something I do on Sunday morning. It's in every fabric of my being. It's in my DNA. It's who I am. Folks, that kind of commitment brings peace. The problem is is we want to ride the fence and we want to have one foot in the kingdom of God and we want to have one foot in the world and and scripture tells us we are the most miserable person of all. The one who's not committed to either one. Folks, we need people 
We need believers in Jesus Christ who love the church as much as he did to be all in, to commit themselves to whatever the cost. See, I would say paying the cost is also worthwhile to other Christians. Folks, when we see other people's commitment, it encourages us. It helps us. I mean, who's not been inspired to renew their spiritual life because of a selfless dedication on the part of someone else? When you see someone else giving all, it's like, man, I could do a little better. Man, I should step it up a little bit. We, we encourage others. All of us can point to the faithfulness of God's people as a source of our encouragement. I mean, when you choose to pay the price, your example helps other Christians. You know, the lost person also benefits from Christians who are all in. I mean, even in the face of great skepticism today, our world is willing to give at least a grudgingly admiration to the faithful and consistent Christian. And here's what they say. I don't know all that he believes, but man, he believes it. He's a strong Christian. He's unwaverable. He's unshakable. He's unflappable. I want to be that guy. And I want to stay that guy. That the world would know that I belong to Jesus Christ. See, even when church members who are hypocritical are scorned, It's those that are solid. It's those that are all in that genuine honor goes to. But I would say to you this morning that the cost, this makes the cost of church membership very worthwhile. I mean, some people would look at James and they might say, well, he's a hopeless idealist. I mean, after all, his faith cost him his life. He died. No, here's the deal. He took his faith seriously while living in a world that held contempt for Christ and his church. And as a result, the world would say he lost everything. But did he? I bet if James could come and speak to us today, I'm confident that he would say that his commitment was well worth the cost involved. I mean, real quickly, I just want to draw three practical lessons here and then I'll be done. The first one is this. That those who teach it is always God's will to deliver us from sickness and tragedy and death are false teachers. The so-called word of faith teachers say that deliverance from any trial is ours by simply claiming it in faith. And they brazenly state that God must obey when we speak a word of faith. And if you're not healed, then obviously the problem is your lack of faith. Folks, it's not that way. I don't understand why these arrogant charlatans get such a large following. They're not speaking the truth. They're not telling the whole truth because none of them are able to avoid disease or even death. 
Secondly, I would say that God does not love us less when he allows tragedy in our lives. He loved James and John just as much as he loved Peter. He allowed James to die and John to mourn the loss of his brother for over 50 years. But he delivered Peter. And he offered no explanation. Maybe he was teaching the church that no one is indispensable to the work of Almighty God. See, the death of James did not hinder the spread of the gospel. It did just the opposite. The gospel began to spread and, 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 and just multiply and grow because of this persecution. But whatever the lessons, James and the, uh, John and the rest of James's family would have been greatly mistaken to conclude that somehow God didn't love them as much as he loved Peter. See, we must always... Interpret our circumstances by God's love. Not God's love by our circumstances. And as difficult as it is, we need to view death from God's eternal perspective and not from our temporal perspective. See, it seems remarkable that the death of James is passed over in one brief sentence. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. He saw Jesus in all of his glory. He was there, that inner circle. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane when when Jesus moved and went a little further in. He was with them. Through it all, he has been there. You know, Stephen, the first martyr, he got a, a long chapter on his death. And he wasn't even one of the apostles. James, one of the inner circle and the first apostle to die, he doesn't even get a decent obituary. One sentence. And King Herod put him to death by the sword. Doesn't seem right. But the seeming wrongfulness of it stems from our temporal, temporary perspective. James was welcomed into heaven. By his Lord Jesus. With the victor's crown. And the words well done. My good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean he went instantly from this life of pain and sorrow and trials. Into eternal joy. John had to remain another 50 years on the earth. And I'm sure that he missed his brother even More often. But as soon as John passed over into glory, he realized how short his relatively long life was compared to eternity. See, I would say today that we probably face few life-threatening persecutions. But when you go to other nations where it's against the law to share the gospel... Those believers are sharing the gospel. Those believers are telling others about Jesus. 
We have the freedom to do that. And we don't use it. Shame on us. See, I think that church membership taken seriously is still costly. But I believe that it's worth the cost. It all begins with a relationship with Jesus. We've celebrated the Lord's Supper. We, 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 we pictured in our minds the, the death and the, the, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. We, we saw the ransom of, of Him, of His life for, for our life, that He pay, paid the price with the blood. But it begins with that, with acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not about joining a Baptist church. It's about being part of His church. All of those labels, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, those are man-made. The church of Jesus is His body. We are the manifestation of His body in this world. And it's a beautiful thing for us to know that it not only costs Jesus everything on this earth, but it's going to cost us something. We ain't, we ain't seen it yet. But we will. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. and Holy Spirit, I, I know that you are at work in each of our lives. And we want to work with you in that. Father, we know that your son Jesus gave his life for the church. And Father, we should do no less. Father, I pray that you would turn our mediocre, our averageness. Father, that you would take the lukewarm out of us. That, Father, we would not be content until we've given everything for you and for your church. Lord, I pray that you would ignite our souls on fire for you. God, you have done so much for us. Lord Jesus, you gave it all. Father, I pray that as your body that we would live each day in light of that tremendous sacrifice. Father, that, that we would put on Christ. God, that we would live for you every day. Father, that we would be done dabbling in the world and being in love with the things of the world. Father, that a great repentance would come upon your body, your bride. Father, I ask that you would guide us as we seek you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that your church, the church of the living Christ, would march once again. Father, wake us up. Father, help us to be all in with you. Help us to make a commitment of our lives 
to your body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.